Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. Hey, it's Ryan. Thanks for listening to Soundtrack Your Life, the podcast where we talk about soundtracks and the personal connections that we have to them. Today we're going to talk about the 1994 Michael Lehman film, Airheads. We have a returning guest today. Uh, he is the guitarist of the Guilty Hearts. Welcome back to the show, Edgar Rodriguez. Dude, what's up, Ryan? It's good to be back. So, Edgar, um, why do you want to talk about Airheads today? <laughs> this movie, I think, was not on my radar when it came out. I think it was one of those, one of those finds where i went to the video store looking for something to to rent and i looked at the cover of this and i was like steve buscemi adam sandler brendan fraser rock and roll okay i'm gonna take this home and check it out and you pop it in and and like right away you know you hit you hit gold because the greatest rock and roll band of all time is opening the movie is motorhead you know so it's like you can't go wrong if if the movie's opening with a motorhead track you you just can't so from there i think for me what i really love about this this movie i mean besides the story which is which is really cool and i'm sure we'll talk about that the cast is amazing but for me it it it's a time capsule you know, why I lived in Los Angeles while while this was happening, and and but to me, it's almost like the movie came out in '94, but really it was almost like set in like '91, right? So it was like the heyday of the Sunset Strip had faded, but you still had like tons of people moving to Los Angeles with that dream of like I'm gonna be a rock star, and I'm gonna do whatever it takes, and so it's like faded glory of of the sunset strip you've still got these hangers on like they still kind of want to do that rock and roll thing uh music around them is changing they don't really fit in the radio station uh that that you know that is featured in the movies you know they, they call it rebel radio of course, we had pirate radio in Los Angeles back then, which is very popular. I imagine that that was partially the inspiration. There's a portion of the movie where, you know, there's this subplot where the, the station is going to be changing formats. That actually happened to uh, KMET uh, 94.7 that most people in Los Angeles was, would know as The Wave. Um, so KMET was very much like uh, KLOS. They were uh, competing AOR uh, rock stations in Los Angeles. And, you know, it's like if, if one station wasn't playing something good, you could flip over to the other one and, and you'd have, you know, some good rock and roll to listen to. And, you know, somewhere, I think it was like 86, maybe, maybe a little sooner, maybe like 85, all of a sudden KMET disappears and, Here's the wave, and John Tesh is now king of the airwaves. 
So, I mean, for me, in a lot of ways, it, it was, it was, um, it captured that period of like, you know, it was right before like rap rock really happened. You know, it was an interesting time in Los Angeles because you had it, uh, like, even in the underground, it was like this very, like, it, it was like, uh, the chili peppers had, uh, had planted seeds and there were all these kind of like funk rock bands that were happening. Right. And so like a little bit of Jane's addiction, a little bit of, of red hot chili peppers, all of a sudden you've got, you know, uh, bands that are doing like slap bass and, you know, white dudes with dreadlocks and, and, you know, I, I think the LA weekly called them dirt heads uh, at the time. Um, but it was like, uh, you know, this like hippie, it's like the moshing hippie of Los Angeles. It was like really into funk rock. So to me, it's like, it's that, it's that exact period where like the, you know, the glow, the glitz, the glamour of, of uh, the sunset strip is like starting to, it's, it's faded and like, there's still people holding on to the dream, but like music is like moving forward and it's a missed opportunity. Right. And it's, it's, I think, you know, you and I were talking a little bit about this, about, you know, how the movie really is about class struggle. It's about people that just have, don't have anything to lose and, and they're just trying to, to move up. Right. They're trying to get, you know, they're, they've been working hard for their, for their idea of glory. And, you know, they're here, they are, you know, what are they going to do about it? And it's, you know, in a lot of ways, I, I think it's, it was much more than I ever expected, you know, picking it off the racket at Blockbuster. So I think it was last week or earlier this week, this discussion on Twitter um, came up about what movie has a low key cast, uh, what movie is low key about being about class struggle. So, you know, obviously we're not talking about like Parasite, which is very literally about a class struggle. Right. And a bunch of people went to bat for airheads. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing is I've seen lots of articles that basically say that Airheads is a remake of Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, really? Yeah. And so I, I thought that was really interesting when, when you brought that up about class struggle, because, you know, what's Dog Day Afternoon about? It's, it's about, you know, that class struggle about not having enough and, and just kind of saying, screw it, I'm going to go rob a bank. And, and that's pretty much what happens with these guys, you know, they're, they're, they think that all they really need is just to, that their music is so good that all they need is that they're, they want their demo heard. Like, that's it. That's all they want, you know, but how they get there is, is quite the journey. But I think it's also important to note that once they get there, they're basically like in this bureaucratic nightmare. Yeah. One, and that's one of those things I think that, you know, we all have this idea that the radio stations are fun and it's all about the music and like, you know, a, a programming director is going to like, it, that's somebody that's just so passionate about music that they're going to go hand select these records and bring them into the station. It's not about that at all. You know, it's, it's as much a business as, as anything else. I remember, um, uh, I won't name the the K Rock DJ because I think he's he's still on the air somewhere. I don't want to get sued for slander either. But I remember having a conversation with this with said uh, K Rock DJ at, at the Whiskey a Go Go, and uh, he was there. I I don't even remember why he was there, but 
you know, I was like, hey, what's happening to like, you know, the music on K Rock? You know, you're playing more and more like, you know, this very popular corporate rock like what's going on like you know what happened like this music sucks and he's like he got really pissed and he got really defensive and he's like do you think that millions of dollars of market research is gonna you know do you think you're gonna know more than millions of dollars of market research he's like i think not i'm like well i know what i like and i vote with my wallet and i vote with my feet you know and it's it, it I think that was really eye-opening. And then um, and I got to intern a little bit at the at that radio station for, for a hot minute. And it was very much like, you know, uh, it was like office space, man. It was like TPS reports talking about like, you know, oh, the the new live single is is up, you know, three points, but it's still getting killed by crash test dummies. And it's like, nobody needed to hear that. And, and chances are, if, if, if we were all organically discovering music, you probably wouldn't have ended up there. I don't know. But that's just my two cents. I've been called a music snob before, so I don't know. <laughs> I feel like this podcast is just for music snob. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. So the movie was a huge, colossal failure. Yeah. From a, from, from a money-making standpoint, I think it did, like, nothing and i think even on if you look on like imdb i think it's got like a six out of ten or something like that um i think i don't know if if it was if it was i mean just the casting decision of like steve buscemi adam sandler and brendan fraser it's like how do you get there you know uh steve buscemi like fresh off of you know things like pulp fiction and um uh reservoir dogs and you know yeah i don't think he had done pulp fiction yet but he had done like reservoir dogs and a bunch of coen brothers films exactly yeah and uh you know uh michael mckean joe mantegna judd nelson chris farley like ernie hudson michael richards like harold ramis harold ramis david arquette in one of my favorite roles in that movie which is like the total party surfer bro it's wild it was very pop culture like like i said it's it's like a that uh it's a it's a time capsule i mean there's a scene in the movie where where they're taking calls and you know beavis and butthead calling that's true <laughs> i saw you at the wagon wheel and your pants sucked yeah i feel like it's a movie that has a bit of an identity crisis how so like you can tell that they were aiming for this to be like a big blockbuster comedy in the summer yeah like it it feels like they they wanted to be like wayne's world or you know something like that but i feel like it would this is kind of a hot take but i feel like it (laughs) is spiritually closer to like high fidelity yeah yeah i definitely i could see that um I don't know. I mean, overall, for me, it was just a fun movie. You know, it was the just the songs in it. Um, I mean, it's like you got Richard Hell and Thurston Moore uh, doing doing some some songs. You got some Bizarro cover of Four Non Blondes, like doing Van Halen, Anthrax doing the Smiths, which is probably my fa- favorite version of London. I think that's the only way I can handle the the Smiths much these days, especially 
I won't get started on Morrissey, but, you know, considering a lot of Morrissey's views of, of the world, you know, it's just like a, a lot of the club scenes were, were really accurate to because white zombie in one of the club yep, scenes. At the yeah. Bar. Yeah. Uh, which, yeah, there, there were, there were people I knew in, in the, like as, as extras in that scene that I knew from just going to clubs and going to shows. So, uh, you know, like I said, it, it just felt really, like an accurate portrayal of Los Angeles at the time. It's really a movie for music lovers. Like you need to understand those references. You need to understand that it's actually pretty accurate when it comes to a lot of these things. Yep. Um, you know, obviously this whole, you know, stage diving into the crowd at the radio station afterwards, probably <laughs> a little too big of a moment for, you know, a smaller movie like high fidelity but you know like it's a movie about music nerds for music nerds in a way mm -hmm. it's it, it's about you know it's like there's that one scene in the movie where where brendan Fraser's character gets uh, uh like his cover gets blown right his cool gets blown uh by a cop and you know i think that diving into the crowd i mean that's that's exactly that's the dream right at that at that time i think in the in the like rock and roll consciousness i think that was the dream it's like the the eddie vetter uh you know jumping into the crowd uh you know adore me you know never quite as cool as like a chris cornell uh, christ pose uh but you know i think it's all related you know it's it was a reflection of the time thinking back on different soundtracks there's not a lot of there's not a lot of soundtracks that are predominantly hard rock for like a major for like a major studio picture no because i mean even in the 80s when you had like you know when when like hard rock was all the rage even things like bill and ted's or i don't know if you remember there was this uh there's a horrible uh freaky friday type movie with kirk cameron and alan thick no it's called like father like son uh yeah it was terrible um, and, uh, I think it was Alan Thicke. I'm sorry, Alan Thicke, if, if I'm uh, associating you with, uh, with this movie and it wasn't you. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, like, it was always like stuff that, and it, like somebody somewhere said, Hey, like, don't use, don't use this, uh, this really cool band, you know, like, uh, like degeneration, like they did in airheads, you know, go ahead and use that winger song, you know? And it's like, Nobody wants to hear the winger song. Poor choices were made. Like, I think there's always a, I think in this day and age, we get spoiled, you know, by, you know, people like T-Bone Burnett that, you know, has a, has a real knack for picking great tunes for, for movies and for shows. I mean, back then it was, who knows? I mean, it was probably like payola, you know, it was like, Hey, you know, let's, let's put this dangerous toys song on the soundtrack instead of something like degeneration or it's funny that you bring that up the music for airheads was chosen by carter burwell Bert, yeah carter burwell um who's known for doing all the coen brothers movies what a trip i did not know that um that's interesting i'll have to look i'll have to look him up you know that's that's one of those jobs that that like when you're like sitting there and you're having a bad day at work and you're like, what would be my dream job? It would be like movies, like music supervisor on, on like a movie or something like that. But, you know, I, I imagine that it's probably not all 
all roses like you would like to think where it's like you're going to get like full creative uh authority over the selection of the songs right but as far as soundtrack supervisors he's probably one of a handful that i know by name that's really cool but you're yeah i i don't know that i know any really besides t-bone but carter uh burwell also did wayne's world too ah okay uh, so it, so then the gold mine later so so that explains how Jamie got a gun ended up on airheads right it's that wayne's world 2 connection that's possible um but yeah you i like that the soundtrack is not like too on the nose as far as like hard rock in this period no i mean you got the replacements on there not actually on the soundtrack but in the movie for sure that's right yeah I, i'm surprised that it, it didn't make it onto the actual soundtrack i thought it did yeah that and the david burns song did not make it on the soundtrack but probably... but stuttering john did yeah stuttering john did make it on there <laughs> I, th- I think the replacements was probably not hard rock enough for the soundtrack. They wanted to probably keep it kind of consistent. Yeah. I mean, that that song, I think, was pretty dead on for the movie. It, it is, you know, very much about not being satisfied with your station in life. And, you know, it's, uh, it's cool. I had heard, like, radio replacements you know, probably way before I heard anything like Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash. Like that record, once I heard that record, I mean, that pretty much solidified it for me. Like I I love pretty much every era of, of the replacements, but for me, like, like that's just like so wild and unhinged and just trashy and, you know, sloppy, but it's got the spirit, you know, and I, I think... That's uh, it's true folk music. Yeah, my friend commented that it's not like exactly punk, but it's like old school rock and roll just played twice as fast. Yeah, man. And that, I mean, for me personally, that's that's another just of my favorite pockets of, of music is, you know, it's uh, some of my friends call it punk and roll. Some of my friends just call it rock and roll, but you know, in the in the '90s specifically, there were quite a few bands, or you know, like bands like the Devil Dogs out of out of New York and Teen Generate out of out of Japan, and um, you know, the, all these bands, you know, the Mummies in San Francisco, that uh, had this sound that was you know it was very rock and roll but it was like very amped up to the point where it was you know people would be like that's punk rock but it sounds like a 50s song um and yeah i mean that's to me that's like you're taking the the shake rattle and roll of the early days and you know the wildness of of little richard and just hitting it with amphetamine and turning it up to 11 and it's, you know, it, it's a living, breathing monster at that point. It was good times, too. So I read an article maybe a year ago about White Zombie and when they were starting, that they were kind of like this art noise band in New York. Like, you know, the White Zombie that we know today or the Rob Zombie that we know today, 
and the Rob Zombie that started back in you know the eighties. They're like very different bands. Like I heard that Rob, that White Zombie before you know they uh, became a huge metal band. They were closer to like Swans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, you know when you're when you're talking about like records like Soul Crusher and, and Make Them Die Slowly, things like that. Um, definitely much noisier. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I like the first three records. Um, Astro Creep was cool too, but I, yeah, Last Sex or Sisto, like that record was, uh, I, I drove, I drove like a 1983 Ford Econoline van in the 90s. And uh, that was one of the cassettes that was uh, permanently in there. And as you said, um, you know, you have Motorhead. Uh, supposedly it's Motorhead with Ice-T and, and Whitfield Crane. I, I have no idea who Whitfield Crane is. Um, I meant to look him up, but I don't, I don't know who that is. You, you might know who that is. Um, the lead singer of Ugly Kid Joe. Oh, that would explain why I don't know who he is. Uh, I have seen the music video to that. Um, it made no sense to me why why either of those guys were in, were on stage with Motorhead. I, I like Ice T a lot. I actually, you know, got to see Body Count a couple times. Um, I've seen Ice T a couple times. Uh, I enjoyed it at the time. Um, yeah, but the, it, like I said, it was like you were right on the the cusp of that whole thing happening let's talk about the cast a little bit. So, you know, we've talked about Steve Buscemi. It, it seems like it's not worth bringing up Adam Sandler, but I, I think at this point in his career, like this is his first like major role of a film and he's going toe to toe with Steve Buscemi and Brandon Fraser, which, you know, they were, they were much more seasoned actors than him at the time. Yeah. I mean, I guess Billy Madison was the, was the next year, right? Yeah. So he hadn't even done that yet. Yeah, so this was the, he's still at SNL. Yeah, it, my favorite line from him in that movie is they're talking about like uh, somebody says something like, "Oh, you know, you you could have a recording of Pip, that's the name of his character, farting on a snare drum, and you'd have a hit." And he just says, "I ain't farting on no snare drum," but it's the delivery that just cracks me up. So one of the other famous jokes from the movie is. You know, the the Lemmy versus God joke. Yeah, yeah. Who would who would win in a wrestling match, Lemmy or God? Yeah, and and uh, <laughs> you've got um, Harold Ramis posing as a as an A and R guy who's, but they they think he's a cop, so they're asking him the question, and you know, of course, he says Lemmy, and he says they're like ah, God, ah, trick question blank hole <laughs> trick question let me is god you know and that's i don't know i i feel like that's true it's true for me at least and so let me makes a you know a cameo in the film as a high school ed newspaper editor exactly but i feel like that's just kind of a metaphor for the movie where you know they're making these super musical like you have to be in the know to understand these jokes like they could have gone for the much broader like 
Ozzy, right? Because everyone knows who Ozzy Osbourne is. Right. But they they stuck with Lemmy because that's what these guys would say. That's what if you like it's it's true to who this band is. Yeah. Well, and I think you know, again, like I think there's there's like a there's like a certain group of people that are like okay. You, you know Keith Richards, right? It's like Keith Richards outlived Lemmy. It's like okay, you know, I heard a story. Uh, I don't even know if this is true, but somebody said that it was in Lemmy's book, where like he had gone to the doctor, and he was like contemplating like cleaning up his act, and and the doctor had you know gone through all his labs, and he basically said, you know, this this combination of of diet booze cigarettes and drugs that you've that you've maintained for so long is actually keeping you alive he's like i i'm actually worried about disturbing the ecosystem of your body it may be the only thing keep keeping you alive so he just kept going <laughs> uh so i mean yeah jack and cokes and and cigarettes and you know I've heard rumors of, of drug use. I, I've never known that to be true for sure. Uh, I, I did see, I don't know if it was a behind the music or like uh, if it was in the, the Lemmy movie where he's in his apartment in, in, in Hollywood off the Sunset Strip and he was just making French fries. Like that was going to be dinner before he went out. He, just, he was cutting up a couple of potatoes and dropping them in oil and making some crisps. Uh, and or some chips and uh, you know that he was gonna have some chips and a, and a Jack and Coke and he was off to the rainbow you know it, it was just one of those things about Los Angeles that for a long time and even now like uh, for a long time it's like you knew that if you went to to the rainbow it, you might run into Lemmy if you went or you went to crazy girls um, you might run into Lemmy and uh you know now it's like he's immortalized on the patio um at the rainbow there's that cool lemmy statue uh i try and go visit it at least once a year usually around his birthday or, or his the date of his passing which are just a few days apart but you know for for me i mean he's he's probably like my uh my rock and roll hero like it like that's if i had to pick one for me it's lemmy you know, it's just like he, no matter how loud, how fast, how hard they played, he always, you know, we're motorhead and we play rock and roll. And, uh, you know, that's, that's always been super important to me. And I'm glad that he made a cameo in the film. I heard in the bar scene where a white zombie ends up playing uh, Cannibal Corpse and Metallica turned, turned it down. I wonder if it was the script or the cast. They're like, hmm, Brendan Fraser, Adam Sandler, now we're out. I, actually I, feel, like with Meta- was... I feel like with Metallica, it's always about the money. Yeah, Lars is like, are you going to put this on Napster? Am I going to get paid? And Cannibal Corpse had already done uh, Ace Ventura, right? Or was that around the same time? I think it was around the same time. I think they probably had to choose between the two. Yeah. Jim Carrey was probably a little more popular at the time than Adam Sandler. You know, and that's why I bring him up. Like he, he holds his own really well in that movie. Like for him to basically be the new guy. Yeah. That he does pretty well. And I can also see like a bunch of like movie executives watching the movie and being like, Oh, that's how we can use him in like (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, because because I feel like his character Pip is like the template for Billy Madison. I feel like for sure. You know, you just turn for up the rage sure. later, but but you know, kind of yeah. like that vulnerable kind of man child. Mm-hmm. You go, yeah. So he goes from Pip to Billy Madison to Happy Gilmore. Uh, yeah, and then eventually to to Little Mickey, which we won't talk about. So I feel like a couple things doom this film. I think I think Michael McKeon not because he's a bad actor or he's miscast in this film, but I feel like him being in the movie just like raises the expectations of a rock and roll film because of this is Spinal Tap. Yeah, absolutely. And the, it, his character is like such the opposite of anything Spinal Tap. You know, he's, he's, the, he's the weaselly uh, ponytail station guy, you know, that's out to sell him out. But yeah, it, he, is, it is like a whole nother level. Yeah, and he wants to turn the station to an adult contemporary station, right? That's like I was saying, like KMET and, and the wave, you know? So the so the Lone Rangers, when they do have their music played, it's actually um, Reagan Youth. Yeah, it's a Reagan Youth song, which very punk rock, you know? I think the cover of that record that, that, uh, that has degenerated on it uh it's got like three clan members on the front you know very like, <laughs> the 80s were a weird time man well i mean they are called reagan youth right exactly exactly uh you know and i really love the the reagan youth version i i don't mind the the lone rangers version i think it's it's uh it's got its charm for sure. I I do wish that that there would have been you know more of an emphasis. That's another band that I wish would have gotten a little bit more recognition. But you know, with with punk especially, you've got so many hidden gems, and I think that's what makes it so collectible. Um, so Primus is also on the soundtrack, oh. and I mean, Sorry. this is the heyday of Primus, right? Like the early nineties. Yeah. I never got that band, man. That that as I think that's kind of like a. I'd rather listen to to oh what was that uh Shamrocks and Shenanigans House of Pain I'd rather listen to House of Pain all day than than, than Primus uh, I'll probably catch hell for that I saw Primus uh, recently last year because the guitar player in Primus was in this metal band back in the day called Possessed. And so I went to see Slayer uh, on their second to last show ever at the Forum. And Primus was the opening act. And they played for what seemed like, you know, 40 days and 40 nights. It was probably an hour, but it, it like, yeah. It, I, I swear I saw Moses up in the nosebleeds with two stone tablets and, you know, trying to lead <laughs> people out of the Forum. How did Ernie Hudson end up in Airheads? Like... That's that's a like a head scratcher for me. So I wonder how much. So Michael Lehman, who directed the film, mm-hmm. he actually I want to talk about the writer and the director of this film because it's kind of funny. So Michael Lehman directed the film, and Michael Lehman did Heather's. Oh, which is awesome. Yeah, which is awesome. So I feel like that's why he was able to grab all these people. Um. So between, he also did some other things, right? 
He did Hudson Hawk and Meet the Applegates. Oh, yeah. Hudson Hawk. That's one of two movies that I've walked out of a theater in. The other one was with, it was like Lou Diamond Phillips, and he was like a cop trying to like get like the Night Stalker, uh, like a Night Stalker type killer. I think it was called The First Power. Yeah, so First Power, Hudson Hawk, two movies, two mo- the yeah. If there's ever a trivia question about me, what are the two movies that I've walked out of? It's Hudson Hawk and The First Power. So maybe he lost some of his his uh, cultural cash with with Hudson Hawk, but you know he did Heather's, and I feel like this is appropriate for like the guy who did Heather's. Yeah, I think I saw Meet the Applegates too. I think that was okay. So he didn't write airheads he just directed it rich wilkes is the guy who wrote it and airheads was his first film or first credit of anything so rich wilkes he's a brand new screenwriter on the scene he Mm -hmm. writes airheads and then he ended up creating the triple x franchise you know the um vin diesel franchise oh I was like, Triple X. I'm like, where are you going? Like, you got into porn? Um, no. Uh, triple, and then I, I, I was thinking, no, I was thinking Triple H. Sorry. Wrestling. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know if I ever, wasn't like Exhibit in those movies too? That sounds, that sounds so correct. <laughs> Yeah, he was in Triple X State of the Union. But I don't think Vin Diesel was in that one. Oh, maybe he took over for Vin Diesel? No, Ice Cube took over for Vin Diesel. But is it but it's funny, like this guy did Airheads and then he did the Jerky Boys movie. <laughs> and then he ended up creating Triple X. Yeah, maybe he was like during the filming of the movies having drinks with stuttering John and he's like, You should do a jerky boys movie. He's like, that sounds like a great idea. And then after that, I'm going total total action flick. Gonna start myself an action franchise. What's he doing these days? Probably trying to figure out how to make more of these Vin Diesel movies. The, do you see? Do you see any of the humor of Heather's in Airheads? Now that I told you that he also directed Heather's. I don't think it's got like the the great one liners that you had in in Heather's, uh, but yeah. You know, I can see there's there's a little bit of the darkness in there. I think it's it's very like uh, it's very Gen X. I've also seen people say that it's a really accurate portrayal of the music industry, and I think you touched on that with you know basically how a, your firsthand experience with how a radio station actually works. Yeah, and even like with the Guilty Hearts, I think. Um, for a brief period there, there was like some flirtation with Virgin uh, Records uh, and somebody that was already on the inside, you know, pulled me aside and said, you know, just be really sure that this is what you want because it's not really what you expect. And, uh, you know, the thing that you love about making music and, and, you know, playing live and things like that, like a lot of that gets stripped away. And, 
you know, you see it in you see it in Airheads how like the thing that they wanted was to have their music heard, and I think you know from from an artist perspective, in a lot of ways, like you see it now. You see people are like, I don't care, I'll give it away for free on Bandcamp. I just want people to listen to it. Um, and uh, but I, I I'm sure that for a lot of artists, like there's that hope of like maybe I'll get discovered, right? There's that there's that story, uh, you know. But it's in the end, it's like, you know, they become a product. They become, you know, another cog in the machine that they're that they're fighting against, you know. And uh, it's like, it's like the Borg in Star Trek. You know, you just get assimilated, and uh, now you're now you're just part of the system. And and, uh, and you see it in a lot of bands that like, you know, they'll they'll get a little bit of success, and and uh, you know, they decide that they want to. Uh, they want to play by their own rules and they want their creative freedoms and, you know, their album gets shelved or they get dropped and, you know, it's a business, you know, and I, I think that's, uh, that's one of those things that I think when you're not living in that world that you lose sight of that it's like you're doing that out of passion and because it's an art and, you know, I, I know a lot of people do it because they don't, ever want to have to get a real job <laughs> you know and and uh having been on tour i can tell you it's it's pretty awesome you know it's like you know you run into you run into other people that you know from other places in you know completely different city um and that's not something that happens often you know and and you know it's people talk about like oh you know i'm gonna go to berlin and they're like oh, i've been to berlin I've even introduced people that like Berlin's a perfect example. Um, you know, I had a friend that was going to be visiting Berlin, didn't know anybody there, had decided that um, she was going to travel uh, by herself, which was pretty ballsy at 19 years old. But, you know, uh, my friend Alice is, is that kind of person. And, uh, yeah. And so it was, I said, Hey, you know, my friend lives in Berlin. You should, you should hit them up and they became friends and and eventually that friend in berlin uh ended up joining the guilty hearts as uh, gabe hammond who became our, our our bass player and but that's how that that's how that life works right it's like if you're if you're very much about like seat of your pants and and like serendipitous events and synchronicities and things just lining up when you least expect it and you know being able to 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 live with that you know feast or famine style like it, it can be a life that that you can enjoy um you know i i don't know that it would have been the same at that level had we gone with virgin rather than you know the small independent label that we went with which is voodoo rhythm out of switzerland um you know it's it's a very different it's a very different thing like we had to sign contracts to even have like uh, like NDAs to even have a conversation with with the people at Virgin or like it wasn't even the people at, at Virgin. It was like the handler for the people at Virgin, uh, you know, whereas like, you know, you, you work with Reverend Beatman who, who runs Voodoo Rhythm and it's a handshake deal. It's like that. That's how you know you got a record deal, right? You got your picture taken with, with Reverend Beatman. And uh, he posted on his website, and the, you know, okay, all right, the Guilty Hearts got a record deal. Here's the picture. Here's the picture with Beatman, uh, and just because it's different, right? It, it's about the art. 
you know, you don't become a product, you know, you're doing it because you want to be heard. You know, you've got something to say, you know, and it's, I think these guys had something to say in the movie and at the same time they wanted to get paid big time. And, yeah. yeah. And I guess the kind of compromise happy ending for them is they get to do it on their terms, right? They're not going to do this, the sham of a lip sync performance. They're going to do their time and, you know, Exactly. They're, gonna, they're still going to use this event to launch their career, but they're not going to, you know, they're not going to do it through this, you know, um, pure PR stunt. Yeah. I wonder how many people watched that movie and then went, I'm going to go write a book about guerrilla marketing. And it's about these wild stunts that are just going to launch a career. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad that, I'm glad that the happy ending is, isn't that they played on this roof and somehow got a really good lawyer. Yeah. Well, you know, they still, you know, I don't want to give a, I doubt anybody's going to go out and see this, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, the whole jail scene is, is, uh, is interesting. Cause again, like you were saying, like, it's like a Johnny cash thing, you know, it's like life from Folsom prison. And, uh, now you've got, a. Uh, you got the the Lone Rangers uh, live uh, from from prison as well, right? And then the uh, radio DJs now their manager since uh, they didn't say they didn't save the radio station that's still going to uh, adult contemporary. Yeah, to blast some Enya. So you know, in a way, it's uh, it's pretty realistic. <laughs> it's very yeah. realistic. Like, you know? They didn't save the radio station. Like I mean, I guess they didn't really care, but. Yeah, no, it, if if we start to take apart that, right, it's like you, you go out, you're standing up because you're fighting for something you believe in. But as soon as you get your piece of the pie, you're like, all right, I'm good. We don't need to fight for anybody else. <laughs> Which is, I think, kind of sad in the current state of the world that we're in now. Yeah. I feel like, you know, so many people just want to get back to brunch. But I digress. Yeah. I mean, I guess they did care about the DJ, and that's why he becomes a manager. At the same time in that business, sometimes people just appoint themselves. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but he did end up siding with them after he found out that he was going to lose his job. Yeah. But he does humor them at the beginning of the film. You know, he does sit them down for an interview for a little bit before things get crazy. Yeah, I think he just... From, if you think about from the character's perspective, he's just trying to, I think he's just trying to have a little fun because I think it's just so ridiculous to him that th this is even happening. <laughs> that whole, like, how can you be the Lone Rangers if there's three of you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And oh, it's, so that, that logic's completely lost on them, yeah. too, which is awesome. Let's end things on... Uh... On the ransom, what they ask for on the ransom note. Oh, man. Uh, I don't remember all of it. Uh, I remember there was a football helmet filled with cottage cheese and naked pictures of B. Arthur. Those are, those are the two most popular things from the ransom note. What else is on the ransom note? I don't remember. Oh, yeah, here it is. So uh, 
Number one, airplay, underlined twice. Number two, a helmet filled with cottage, a football helmet filled with cottage cheese. Number three, a Zahn walnut base with a graphite neck. Uh, and uh, a PRS guitar with a dragon inlay. Uh, number 13, naked pictures of B. Arthur. That's what it is. But, but even if you think about those things on the list, like such specific things, like with, with the guitar, the PRS guitar, like such a specific, you know, like if, if you wanted to make it for the masses, right? You just say, ah, oh, it's a Fender guitar. Yep. He wants a Fender guitar, fancy Strat. Yeah. You know, it's, it's Ozzy instead of Lemmy. Um, it's, I feel like it's not, yeah, it's not B. Arthur. It's, uh, you know, Elvira or somebody, I don't know. Right. Like, I, I feel like there's these like very specific jokes, these very specific references. I don't know if it was the writer or if it was the director, but they really wanted to make it like really specific to the scene and like what these people would actually want. I think that's what makes a good cult movie. You know, it's like, it's the fact that it's quotable, it's rewatchable because it's just, it's so ridiculous. And it's like, even in the movie, it's like, there's, there's a, there's a scene uh, where like the cops are outside and they're gathering the demands. And in the background, you can see two cops filling a a football with cottage cheese. (laughs) Like it actually happened. Uh, So, I mean, it's, it's got tons of these little Easter eggs just like buried in it. And um, I don't know. It's, it's a, like Heather's, right? So uh, like uh, Heather's is very, very quotable. Get out of my bed, you fucking psycho. Like that. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's got great lines. Um, oh, I just enjoy it. Well, thank you, Edgar, for coming back on the podcast. Anytime. Uh, the Guilty Hearts are on all major streaming services. Edgar's cooking up some new music um, of his own. Yeah. And uh, check that out. Check out our website. There's a, uh, we put a playlist up every week with uh, bands that we talk about on each episode. Um, There'll be some guilty hearts on that playlist, I'm sure. Um, So thanks again for coming by, uh, Edgar. Yeah, my pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, SoundtrackYourLife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.